Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'll be speaking with Linda White about getting on a board, being an effective board member and being on a board. So first, let me tell you just a little bit about Linda. She describes herself as having done heaps, she rarely says no, and she's never too old to learn stuff. She's on the National Executive for the Australian Labor Party, the Executive of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the National Executive of the Australian Services Union, and she's also on the board of the Chifley Research Centre, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, the MCG Trust, and the Portable Long Service Leave Governing Board. She was formerly on the board of Legal Super, the Royal Botanic Gardens, 200 Gertrude Street, Footscray Community Legal Service, the Australian Social Inclusion Board, and again, as she says, I was on heaps of things at uni. We might hear a bit more about that in a moment. So welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Linda. Great to be here, Helia. So Linda, before we start talking boards, I'd like to hear a bit more about you. So can you tell me a bit more about your upbringing or what lessons you learned and what you got up to? Well, my parents, I think... It's only when you get older that you sort of reflect on the influence that you had on them. And so if I look at their influence in the context of you know, the sort of things that I do, which is being on lots of things, they were on lots of things too. My sort of earliest memory of their activity was my mother being on the uh, local kindergarten board. I think she was treasurer. So they would freak, you know, they obviously rotated meetings around and she would be on that. And she'd, she, she was, they would come to our house and meet. Uh, and then my father was also on things. He would be on Apex or Rotary or, or any kind of club. They were always not just participants, but they were always on the kind of the board or um, being involved in doing something, whether it was producing the magazine or distributing things. So they were really quite full on at it and, you know, and they did that all their lives. As a friend of mine would say, they were joiners. Yeah, they were not only joiners, so people joined, but they also actually took it to the next level mm. to be kind of involved in the, you know, the executive of it or running it or helping at a higher level always. Like they, you know, there would be rarely that they were on something they didn't 
get onto the executive board or produce a magazine or have some role and responsibility over and above joining. And, you know, it's it's certainly that was, you know, when that's your role model, you probably end up doing that sort of thing. And I, that's probably what I've done. I hear that from a number of people where they've seen that in their family. So you would have seen that as a child then, some of the governance, but what was your first experience of governance? Well, I was on quite a few things at university. So I ended up being... Um, when I was at Melbourne Uni, being president of both the Commerce Student Society and the Law Student Society, which were... At the um, same time? Maybe not exactly at the same time, but very close. I think it was Commerce Student Society president first, and then Law Student Society president. And so they ran, we ran things, we provided things, we advocated. And it was certainly in law, in the Law Student Society, it was often contested and, um, you know, you had to have, keep your wits about you. So we would have meetings, but we would also have to interact with the faculty. And so so you had to be able to wrangle people and convince people. So it was uh, certainly probably not governance in the strict sense that we talk about it now, but it is, you know, everybody had their roles and responsibilities and if you were president, you had to make sure that they did it and you also had to make sure it was financially viable and, you know, we ran balls and things like that. So you had to make sure that it worked, that you didn't lose money and that um, you know, people would want to come again, that mm. sort of thing. So, you know, gave me a lot of experience in how to do all of those things and they were at least two of the things that I were on. There, there were others because you know, I had a joining, I have the joining gene, as you say, <laughs> um, but also the participation gene. So yeah, you know, right. I did a few of those things. So it gave me, hones your skills and also wrangling others is extraordinarily important. So you're, you know, the Australian Centre for Moving Image the MCG Trust, which I'm sure holds some fascination for people, and the ALP, the Australian Labor Party National Executive. Can you just tell us a little about each of those organisations? So uh, ACME, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, is a fantastic organisation. It runs you know, a gallery that's currently being renovated that's in Federation Square, and it also tours and creates exhibitions, but it also has a a space for emerging entrepreneurs in the art space and it does a whole range of different things. So the thing that is really interesting to me about it is it's a public sector board and the depth of talent and creativity of the people who work there you don't get as much of a exposure to uh, when you're on the board you suddenly realize what a massive asset the people are, but also the assets that they control under at ACME. So it has a great resource of films and moving images, um, which you, know, you just the state owns this is is fantastic. And yet it is a massive touring organisation, and how they do that is amazing and how they attract world-class exhibitions to it was just what fascinated me. I'd been a patron for a long time and the opportunity came to get on the board and I jumped at it because I really wanted to understand how Melbourne could attract such massive exhibitions that go nowhere else in Australia. So I learned a lot about, I enjoy the subject matter, but the depth of talent and the depth of ownership of assets that that organisation has that the state owns is amazing. Mm. It is a really interesting board and it is got its challenges. It's currently being redeveloped and so watching the redevelopment, understanding what how building can be fraught, it brings a whole set of new things and, you know, it is in the public eye and so watching how things get scrutinised is also 
interesting from a board perspective and we've had one or two occasions where that's happened where there's been some controversy and the way in which the board operator was really interesting and um, dynamic. Are you able to share any of those controversies? There was an exhibition last year that was sponsored by a large organisation and it was fairly controversial and they were unhappy with it. Some boards might have said, well, well, well they've got to edit what the sponsoring organisation doesn't like. And so we had to really wrangle through those issues. And of course, we didn't suggest that at all. We went ahead um, and you know the people who were patrons of it, um, of the exhibition were... And the artistic community just thought we'd done exactly the right thing. But it took a lot to work through that because you've got to balance donors mm-hmm. versus art integrity. And that was a really, it was a great exercise and controversial and in the public eye. But, for, you know, for the artists, that springboard was massive for them because it got more publicity than it might necessarily. I mean, they're very well-regarded artists and um, it probably would have done well uh, anyway, but it was interesting to see um, the uh, yeah the controversy wouldn't have was probably helpful pushed it along. The exhibition went ahead as initially intended, and the sponsors remained. They have a, a multiple year sponsorship, but they just didn't want their name associated with particular exhibitions, so they withdrew their name. Although they did sponsor, it was a, a competition, if you like, and the, this was the artists were, that were selected for it and then they'd, and they'd put clearly what they were going to do but I think um, what it says in writing and how it manifests itself might be slightly different. That was an interesting um, exercise for the board to go through because it all happened very close to the scheduled opening so we did had a lot of meetings about what was the best way forward and you know, I think we did choose the, the best way forward. So these boards are not without controversy and you know, similarly if I think about the MCG Trust, you know, um, that board is, uh, stands in the shoes of the state which owns the MCG and, uh, you know, that the MCG is always, has scrutiny, I think, today. You know, there was a, I think on Anzac Day, there was a food poisoning incident. Somewhere like the MCG, which Melbourne people value a lot, is always going to come under scrutiny if bad things happen and so that is interesting to be on that too, um, to to realise, you know, how something as iconic as the MCG and is valued by the public, that it's a... Onerous is probably the wrong word, but it is an interesting and I think to be on it because you then feel every comment or every manoeuvre and the MCG Trust pretty much contracts out all the work for the MCG to the MCC and that's a fascinating relationship too because that's a club. It's a really interesting board but there are lots of things. It is a sports ground but it's also an iconic gathering place for Victorians and Australians uh, and it has you know significance for the Indigenous population where it's located. It's got a lot of layers to it and the parkland too is the responsibility of the trusts and so the Yarra Park around it. I learned a whole lot of things uh, just about how to operate it and you know, there's a lot of bits and pieces to the operation of a successful game when 80,000 people or 100,000 people come at different times but all leave together. It has its various various levels of challenges. So just on that as well, if I can dig around a little bit, what are the subcommittees of that board? Because I imagine there is it's quite a complex operation. 
There's a couple of subcommittees. There is um, subcommittees that deal with the finances, which operate with the MCC. There is also the... It operates the National Sports Museum, so I'm on the advisory board for the National Sports Museum representing the Trust. There is negotiating committees in relation to some of the, you know, dealing with major clients like the AFL and the cricket. There's a people for do that. Uh, and so a series of things. And so and it's dealing with government as well. So it's a few layers. But the MCC, so the Melbourne Cricket Club is the employer of most of the staff but for uh, for the trust we're standing in the shoes of the state government and got to make sure that it's run the way we think it should. Is the finance committee also risk or is risk a separate committee? So the finance committee is more to do with the MCC and we have a oversight on that because they they have the money so we don't actually have a risk committee of our own so but we deal you know we deal at a board level significantly with security and understand about that yeah you've got to look at risk in every circumstance but the more you interact with the public the more the risks are about their safety and their security obviously the asset itself too of course but you know if I look at uh, other things that have been on, like the Royal Botanic Gardens, the risk of that was a tree falling down, um, which, you know, does happen. <laughs> but also it had massive collections and um, of things that were priceless you could never do. So it's a simile with the MCG. It has risks of things that can never be replaced and risk of people not coming or risks of sport changing, a whole lot of things. It's, it's interesting. The Australian Labor Party National Executive, Linda, tell me about that and uh, tell me how you woke up on the 19th of May 2019, the day after the federal election. I've been on the ALP National Executive for quite a while. Uh, It's an interesting organisation. The National Executive, it's like any federation, so the Labor Party is a federated organisation and so it brings with it its own challenges and it brings with it interesting personalities but it's um and it might not work necessarily the same as other organizations the aim is the betterment of australia so if one keeps that in mind which sometimes it's a bit hard to but if you keep that in mind that we want to make life better for australians um then that grounds you pretty much when things turn to um shit is that the word (laughs) um In terms of the 19th of May, look, it's extraordinarily disappointing when the majority of people expect you're going to win when the polls tell you your party is going to win and you don't win. There is a significant amount of soul-searching, but it also tells you, I think, that we're not immune from what the rest of the world is experiencing. That is, um, people are probably disenchanted with politics and what they say to a pollster and what they might do... It can be two different things. That's not too great for the polling industry and it's not too great for for political parties, but it also probably teaches you can never take anything for granted and that a week is a long time in politics. Mm. Um, and so that is as true now as it was when it was first said. Things can change dramatically or um, sometimes politicians and, and we don't... we see what we want to see rather than what's actually happening and that can be on any organisation that you're on. The skill in the game is to see what and hear what people are telling you, not what you want them to say. And mm. 
I was uncertain that we were going to win. I thought that Labor was going to win. I suppose everybody says that now. Um, but I, I, I did have a, you know, not a 100% feeling that we were going to get over. Um, and it's different when you're in Victoria as against the rest of the, Australia. The opposition ran a very tight campaign, which might not have had much substance um, in terms of depth of policy, but it certainly was effective. And, you know, it also, I guess, raised for us as Australians, the when somebody like um, Clive Palmer intervenes in, in politics and puts so much money in and doesn't really care whether he wins or not to change minds, then it means politics has changed forever. Mm. So yeah, there's lots of things to think about in all that, but, you know... It's a, um, I haven't thrown away my membership and I'm still on the ALP National Executive and it'll be onward and upward and see what we do next. You're also on the board of the uh, Portable Long Service Benefit Authority and I'm interested to hear about that because it's a new organisation. So effectively you're on a startup organisation in some ways because it's new. So I'm wondering if you can, A, just give us the quick summary about what that organisation's about and also then maybe some of the governance challenges that have been in place because it's a new organisation? Yeah, it is a new organisation. So it, it basically collects from employers in the community sector, the security industry and uh, the contract cleaning industry money for uh, employees for long service leave because in each of those industries they move between employers a lot because of the type of industries they are and so it was something that the ASU has campaigned for a lot across Australia. There is a scheme um, in the ACT and there's been there for quite a while and there's also those sort of long service leave schemes particularly in the construction industry across Australia so it is new for these industries in Victoria and uh, only the second for this set of industries in, in Australia. It is about starting up and looking at the infrastructure, where the office would be, how it's going to operate, what does the legislation mean. It's going to collect a lot of money. So what the investment structure is going to be, all of those things are new. And so from that point of view, it is fascinating to be involved in. There are guidelines because it's obviously a state entity about things, um, but it is starting afresh and it is starting from the 1st of July, employers, you know, their liability starts and they've got to make their first payments, I think, um, by September. You know, how much money has got to be collected, what the levy should have been, all of those things were preliminary decisions that the board had to make and will set the scene for years to come, really. So it was fascinating to be involved in it. It's a doing sort of board, you know, because there's a kind of... It's got an outcome thing, if you like, that you've got to collect the money for each of these employees and it's a kind of defined thing. So it's a bit different to, uh, and it's a service board, I suppose, in some ways, but it's really interesting um, just to see it and because it's been a, a wish of the Australian Services Union for a long time to have this in the community sector and missed out some years ago because the legislation didn't get through before um, an election and the Labor Party didn't get up, so... It was a big hiatus, so it is a lot has been riding on uh, this working because they've wanted it for so long. I suppose though I'd been on a 
like sort of a startup. I was on a the legal industry super scheme way back when, which is a predecessor to the to legal super, and that was like a cottage industry. You can't think of it, you don't really think of um, superannuation as a cottage industry, but maybe I was around early enough to see it like a cottage industry where it was really small, hardly any investments. There were certainly not the sorts of organisations hanging around superannuation back then as there are now, and so I've sort of seen how things develop from something small to something serious and you know and for this portable long service leave it has real potential to change people's lives. With that board when you came together for the first time like a totally new board coming together how did you come together how did you work together how did your induction go when everybody's new how did all of that work? Uh, well, they inducted us within an inch of our lives, which was interesting. Um, I, I've never been through such a, a serious uh, induction, like, like it was full on and everybody did it together. So often you don't have that opportunity mm. because people come in at, you know, at staggered times. And so that was really good because we really did it and we uh, and I went through, the, talked about the legislation, we talked about, you know, how it interacts with the state and what the insurance is like, what the investments are going to be like, how it will work, what the IT... And there'd been a Department of Industrial Relations, I think that's exactly its name, but they had a task force working group that set things up. And so to get their perspective on where things were, yeah, it was really full-on. The thing that was really unusual is that everyone came in at once and so you had like a mass induction of everyone over a long it was over two days just because they want you know they can see it started it's a startup and they really wanted to um, make sure everyone was up to speed because there were a series of significant decisions that had to be made pretty early so Mm. that was interesting. What was your first board and how did you join that organisation? I think the first one uh, was either the Footscray Community Legal Service or a gallery called 200 Gertrude Street, which was a gallery for emerging artists. Uh, So it had studios, which was unusual, um, and it had on its board an interesting mix of people. The state government mostly appointed people. I think the artists also had, they could select someone to be on the board. I was appointed by Jeff Kennett twice. So, So that was an interesting board because it was something... Um, I didn't know too much about contemporary art and I didn't understand how the art spaces worked, but it was a great board and somebody asked me who I knew who had been on it, who was getting off it, and they asked me if I'd been on it and uh, never being one to say no, I said, sure, yeah, I'll get on that. It was run on a smell of an oily rag, but it had had a very large reputation and had definitely had some fantastic artists like somebody like I think Howard Arkley started his career there for instance. So you've been on a lot of boards Uh, you would have seen a lot of different experiences at board and different chairs is there any particular experience that stands out to you? Uh, there's lots of experiences. There's always, I mean, I, I can't unfortunately go into the ALP National Executive, which you have to wait for my memoirs. There's been some interesting times there. But I can certainly say in relation to some of the boards I've been on with, is often with quite conservative people who you know, I would probably say are not ideologically in the same place as me. And I, um, what I learnt from a, a couple of those boards where I've seen people like that is is that you shouldn't dismiss people just because they come from a kind of a different 
an ideological point of view or a different background. There was a guy who was a chair of the Legal Industry Super Scheme who was had been on a on ASX boards. He was a very senior. He'd been a senior partner of a very large Melbourne law firm, and he was really smart. And but like I think he described me as like a gentleman. He was a, sort of an old school lawyer type, but very clever. And he was very skillful as a chair, and that he pretty much let everybody have their say, but somehow everyone always ended up close to what he thought. Or, <laughs> But you always thought that you'd had your say. Now, maybe he changed his view based on what people said, but I always felt like you always had a good chance to say what you thought and you, he always brought it to a resolution uh, and he did that in a skillful way. And I learned a lot from watching how he chaired uh, sometimes a disparate group or with different opinions to kind of bring it to a head and you know, for the best interest of the members. And so I think that um, is a, another life lesson is that, you know, you just can't just because people don't don't have the same background or look ideologically different, you can't discount that they're not actually in it for the right reasons and that you can't find common ground. And I've certainly found that in other boards where people have had completely different political views than I might have and have their experience um, would be on far more like you know, a conservative think tank or the like and, and you think, hey, what are we going to have in common? But if you think of, you know, that you want to have good governance and you want the best for the organisation that you're dealing with, if they're your overriding principles, then all that stuff drops away. Mm, indeed, having some of those diverse voices around the table, you know, the evidence around diversity is that having those diverse voices means that you will get stronger decisions. So learning how to manage that is uh, one of the arts that it sounds like your former chair had. I think diversity is not just about political views. It's about you know, gender, it's about ethnicity, it's about a whole lot of things. And the, the boards that I'm currently on, I know the state government is really keen on ensuring that we have Indigenous people, which adds absolutely to the way in which we look at things. And um, it also just people from different cultural backgrounds, mm. because everyone comes to comes to issues in a different way. And I think the skill and the best working boards is where you respect what people say that is different, but in the end, often you come to the same conclusion, even if the route is a different one. Thinking about our conversation, which has been around a number of the boards that you've been on and some of the life lessons around there, if you were the chair of this and this were a board meeting, how would you be summing up? What are some of the main points that you want people to take away from this conversation? I think that you're never too learn, old to learn things. I don't know if that's come through, but mm. I find with the boards that I'm on that I don't think that I know everything just because I've been on um, other things before because every experience is different. The challenges can be different, but you know, the more things that you've done, even if it's, you know, you can bring those to boards. Um, I find that being on boards helps me at my work because it exposes me to a lot of different things. I suppose the other lesson I'd say is, is that it's incredibly refreshing to get away from the things that you know uh, and you can't underestimate what you do know and that, that you can apply to a lot of circumstances and you know I would never say no which is mm. probably why I ended up on a bunch of things but I also think you can constantly learn and the boards that I've been on, the way in which governance has been ter interpreted over a long period has changed. Um, people's responsibilities and how you uh, view it has changed and I think that those are things, I guess, that I'd take from it. 
as I said, I'm probably a product of my upbringing. My parents were on everything and I've taken that and run with it. <laughs> Someone's got to do it, Linda. It's a fantastic It's a fantastic trait to have. Is there a resource that you'd like to share with the community? A TED Talk, a book, an idea? If there's not, that's okay. No, there isn't. But there's maybe one other thing I might say. Despite the fact that I've been speaking for 30 minutes, uh, <laughs> um, I also think that another thing that I didn't talk about that I do think is that you shouldn't just speak to hear your own voice, which is a bit odd talking at a podcast, but I think that what I have learned is that impactful interventions are important. So sometimes it's the quality, not the quantity, and that I've certainly sat on a number of boards where, like some people don't say much, but you know that their mind is ticking over. So I don't know if that's in a TED Talk anywhere, probably not again, they talk all the time, but I think that that it would be another, like if somebody's written about that, it's how to make something where everybody goes, okay, that intervention was really, that's changed the way in which we operate. I think that's an important thing. Thank you, Linda. It's been so fantastic to talk to you and hear some of those stories and hear those experiences, you know, way back to you learning it as a kid from your own family and through university and then onto the boards that you've been on. So thank you for sharing some of that wisdom with us today. And I know the community will get a lot from our conversation. So thank you. Thanks, Helen. Hi there, it's Halia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.